Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hello, this is Whitney Lowe, and Books of Discovery has been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. In these trying times, this beloved publisher is dedicated to helping educators with online-friendly digital resources that make instruction easier and more effective in the classroom or virtually. Books of Discovery likes to say, learning adventures start here. They see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and they're proud to support our work, knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession. So check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com, where Thinking Practitioner listeners can save 15% by entering thinking at checkout. Hello, and this is Whitney Lowe, and I am uh, joined here today by a good friend of mine, uh, Nikki Monk, who's going, who's an associate professor of health sciences and going to talk to us about research. So Nikki, welcome to the Thinking Practitioner podcast. Great to have you here. Hey, Whitney, it's so good to be here. Um, and I am with uh, Indiana University, the School of Health and Human Sciences, and I'm on the IUPUI campus. So when people think of Indiana University, they oftentimes think of the Bloomington campus, which is the beautiful, beautiful flagship campus um, for the system. But we're on the IUPUI campus, which is in Indianapolis. And um, it's where all of the health affiliated and graduate programs so the school of dentistry and school of medicine and then we're the school of health and human sciences all right that sounds great is that um i think i asked you this one time a long time is it ui pui is that how you say that the abbreviation well it's iupui back yeah. in the day um that was a common nickname that was used um back when well, gosh we had the pan am games back in the 80s or 90s or something when we uh -huh. got our beautiful beautiful sports facilities out here and of course right in our backyard right across the street actually from my office is the ncaa headquarters oh, wow. okay um so it's just it's really really great for sports enthusiasts around nice. the world <laughs> yeah all right so is is ui pui not a correct acronym or moniker correct. for the yeah, yes, no, okay yeah iupui I will dismiss that from my mind from here forward. So good. Nikki, uh, tell our listeners, if you would, a little bit about, you know, fascinating background here. This is so unusual for us to, you know, have individuals who are both massage therapists and PhD researchers. And this, of course, puts you in a very unique position in regards to what you're doing with research. Tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into these two, two separate tracks here. Oh, sure. You know, it, it's all so meandering because my undergraduate training was actually in theater. I, you probably remember that because me and Amblair Kennedy both hail from, from that background. And, my, and Ruth um, Werner does too. Yes, and Ruth. Yes. Uh -huh. right. And uh -huh. the, the three of us, yes, we, we, we enjoy when we're all around together. Um, That's right. Going back into our thespian roots. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I did that. And I my uh, acting career did not last very long when a job up in New York fell through and I found myself doing outdoor drama and uh, sort of trying to figure out what to do with my life. Yeah. And my parents actually led bicycle tours for about 25 years after they retired from the military. And I went to visit them when I was, you know, bartending and working three jobs, trying to just make ends meet. And I had a wonderful experience with them watching these people who were riding across country 
and just having the time of their lives. And I, I, I went to bed thinking, oh my gosh, how can I get to that? Like retirement <laughs> age yeah. and things right. um, without having to you know, live most of my life. And I, I literally woke up the next morning and went, they need a massage therapist. Oh, and I oh. went to massage school because I was going to travel the country with my parents and do uh-huh. sports massage and, and the like. And um, that ended up not being what happened. I ended up specializing actually in older adults. Mm-hmm. And I did not feel that my training had prepared me to do the kind of work and really understand um, what was happening with the massage and the, and the aging process. And so I thought I would go back to school and get like my master's in, in aging or something like that. And um, when I arrived at uh, uh, University of Kentucky to get information about a gerontology program that they had, I, I came to found out that they did not have a master's, but they had a PhD program. Uh-huh not knowing what PhDs were or what research was other than what I considered research to be going to yeah. the library and looking in the indexes and, you know, looking, looking into things. Um, and I'm like, perhaps okay, good that you didn't know what you're getting into. At that time. Truly, <laughs> truly. Um, yeah. And I, uh, I, I was like, okay, well, I can do that. I can, I can get a PhD. And I started the program. I think they were a little unsure about me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I, I went in and I, in the process of, of course, learning about aging and that whole aging process with the full intention of going back to community and teaching, um, uh, doing continuing education on aging and biology of aging and things like that for massage therapists, I learned a lot more about actual research process. And I started reading uh, research, reading the research that had I had gone through massage school sort of revering as the end all be all and realizing that it wasn't terribly strong. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I realized, and so this was back in the early 2000s. I, I, I finished massage school in um, 2002, uh, mm-hmm. February of 2002. And um, so, uh, right, so realizing that I could probably touch more people if I helped in, improve the evidence base because I would be able to help make uh, massage more accessible, hopefully, the whole reason why I've gotten into yep. research. To, um, to increase the increase the accessibility so that more people can then access massage. So while I may not be the person laying hands on, um, more people would be able to do that by elevating the field, elevating the research, and the like. So that's that's what sort of brought me here and my um, my alignment with the uh, department and my faculty position um, was really fortuitous in that, like massage therapy that does not reside in the academy. Gerontology doesn't necessarily have its own discipline by itself either. Um, mm-hmm. It's it is a uh, discipline that cross cuts a lot of other disciplines. So you have folks who study aging who are in the in the biology side of things, some in the psychology side, some of the social aspects. So it's very interdisciplinary fields. And so I have these two interdisciplinary fields: massage or integrative medicine and health is what I I, I really focus on and then also gerontology and it was able to I was able to find a really nice fit and faculty home within the school of health sciences and I teach gerontology classes and aging classes to undergraduates but then my doctoral students and my master's students are getting their degrees in health and rehabilitation sciences Mm -hmm. and I teach I teach the foundation of theory building and research concepts and how to construct research questions and do research studies and things like that 
and then for my master's and doctoral students teaching theory building, theory application, research methodology, so how to do the, the clinical research, and then um, also the foundations of rehabilitation, because I tell you what, that's another really lovely umbrella discipline that therapeutic massage and bodywork really can fall under as well. And, and I'm, I'm scheduled to give a talk up in um, Canada. It's been postponed several years, um, but it's uh, gonna be focusing on rehabilitation as an umbrella discipline for massage clinicians to consider themselves within. Tell me a little bit more about that in terms of, you know, what that entails. Is that, is that specifically talking about massage as a rehabilitative practice or massage across the spectrum in rehabilitation in lots of different areas? What's, what's that sort of about? Yeah. So it's really fascinating as I have, you know, I, much like research mm-hmm. when I, when I became engaged and involved in rehabilitation, um, didn't really know the full details of what all rehabilitation entails. And there's a really um, great journal article with first author named Stuckey, S-T-U-C-K-I, I believe. And it came out in maybe 2007. I will get a PDF of that and, and send that to you if you want to have Excellent. This yeah, we can put it in the show notes. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it outlines rehabilitation as having four key components that that it can be like health health situations that rehabilitation could be applied within. Mm-hmm. And one is from a curative standpoint. So to actually fix something, right? Um, another one is what we would consider rehabilitation. So there's been an injury and we are rehabilitating it, right? Um, then there is a palliative um, aspect of it, which is doesn't, palliative care, of course, is all well-being, very quality of life focused. Um, and then, so there is the acute curative rehabilitative. Oh, and I think well-being and supportive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's these four different components that massage therapy can really fall within. Oh, preventative. That's yeah. the fourth one yeah. and prevention. And you wouldn't think of rehabilitation being, having a, a preventative component. And that's actually a key component of rehabilitation, mm-hmm. not only for those who might be considered a rehabilitation population or, a, you know, a, and, and keeping them from either further decline or increasing their susceptibility to other conditions. And so, it, and then, or even somebody who is uh, fully functional, being able to keep folks at their top performance level so that they are able to withstand any sort of assault to their system better, right? And bounce back quicker. Yeah. So with, with that, it just seems like massage can fit within those different tracks so easily. I mean, you know, I think that that's, one of the things that makes me crazy, and you and I have talked about this before, is that so much of the systems within which people are thinking um, are often with this notion of massage is going to fix or X is going to fix. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of things, a lot of conditions or experiences that people have that are either progressive, so they are going to get worse, or the, the piece that is making the issue happen isn't going to be removed and taken away, either yeah. because it's somebody's hobby that they enjoy doing or whatever, right? Or their job that's going to be done. And so to say, okay, everything is curative. Mm-hmm. You have this condition and now we're going to fix it. That isn't the way massage therapy is practiced very often. And it certainly isn't the way that rehabilitation is done. So this is, it's not an issue unique to massage therapists for sure. Cause physical yeah. therapy, the occupation that everybody deals with yeah. that. I want to get back to something you said earlier 
um, talking about this, this idea that, that massage therapy didn't really reside in the academy because, um, you know, I think you and I may have talked about this and I know I've had this conversation with lots of other people before that we really have far more of a kind of a lineage model of education than we do a true sort of academic environment. And I want to hear your perspective from a researcher. Do you think that has been or may continue to be more of a challenge or impairment for us that a lot of students don't really understand the whole world of research and what this means because we don't have that much of an academic orientation to to our training. Yeah, I think it will continue to be quite hindering um, for for the progression of, of the, the field and certainly for the progression of um, the research components. Uh, one of the pieces that we have talked about, and in fact, I'm remembering a little booth that we sat in uh, over, over lunch one day. So you're right, Whitney, um, that I, I believe that is going to continue to be a little problematic. And, and, and we have discussed this before um, because there is progression in all of these other fields. And you have, we think of clinicians as mainly people in our field, massage therapists or, or uh, somebody who has a medical background, but almost all disciplines have a clinician aspect to it because we are part of a, an applied discipline. And there's these different levels that happen. You've got the clinician piece that works within the context of the known knowledge, right? Of a particular mm -hmm. field. And our field is not necessarily the ones who are devising and developing the contextual knowledge of the work that we do. Mm -hmm. And that, that will always cause a disconnect between the clinicians and well, the research, right? We, yeah. you know, that's, that's a problematic piece as well, that we're not the ones doing the research either. Not to say that the research that's being done isn't good and sound and important, but it isn't necessarily being done within the context of our field and how it's being delivered. And so how do we change that? I mean, how do we, oh. how do we sort of shift the, the perspective on that or shift the process? Like, that sounds like one of those big things of how do you turn, you know, a giant aircraft carrier around in one mile. So it is. And, you know, I don't think it's something that can happen overnight. Mm -hmm. And it's one of these pieces that, you know, we, you've probably seen my Venn diagram that, that, that I, I, any talk that I do, I, I share this Venn diagram that it has one bubble is research, one bubble is practice and one bubble is education. And then they have, and then they, you know, have this really nice overlap. But then there's this great big bubble that encapsulates everything, and that is policy and context. Uh -huh. yeah. In an ideal situation, all of those things, you know, the three bubbles are all together, and then that contextual piece is all, all surrounding it and encompassing it because the regulations and the credentialing and the oversight, all that works with all of those pieces. And in some fields, that actually occurs. Yeah. Uh -huh. that, isn't necessarily the way, it, well, it's not the way that it occurs in, in our realm, for mm -hmm. sure. Um, and in a lot of integrative health practices. Yeah. So the question of, you know, how can, how can that change or how can that, that shift? Um, there has to be work done on all those different fronts and levels. And ideally those things will be done uh, concurrently and with communication with one another. Mm -hmm. and, not very many fields do that well. Yeah. Um, and I would yeah. also suspect that, you know, 
that there's language barriers, that researchers don't understand some of the language that massage therapists use when they talk about their work and massage therapists don't understand you know, a lot of the language that researchers talk about when they're doing those things. And that makes it difficult for them to kind of communicate and work with each other on what are we really trying to learn about what's happening here? Yes, well, and that, and that language disconnect can happen even within realms of researchers. When you have conferences of different disciplines coming together and they're, they're all researchers, there's like a whole day set aside at the beginning to just set the contextual and, and shared language. Wow. To know uh -huh. that when I say this, this is what I mean, not what you think I mean or what it means in your yeah. language. I put that right. in air quotes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tricky. It's mm -hmm. tricky. And then, and then you've always got the ego pieces that, that, you know, occur with individuals or institutions or what have you, the history pieces as well. And then unfortunately there's also turf and other sorts of um, motivators, mm -hmm. right? So whether yeah. it's financial backing or uh, support or what have you, those, those things come into play. We see that in legislation a lot. Yeah. And, you know, other disciplines will come in and they will pigeonhole, no, this is, this is ours and nobody mm -hmm. else can. Right. Yeah. Right. And that, that's not good for ultimately patients, clients, the humanity that we're supposed to be helping. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, I hear from massage therapists all the time who, who say, well, yeah, we hear everybody talking about how research is really important and this is something we should know a lot about, but I just, you know, I just, I just do my work and I get good results. Like, I don't know, you know why do I need to know about this? So tell me, how does, how does research help the average massage therapist in their daily work? What a great question. Well, there's several different ways in which it can help. One, it can uh, impact people in their daily practices just by an awareness from, from others and the respect and understanding that community other other community members may have not just the clinicians right um so that's one piece the more research that's out there the more recognition that it's getting an understanding people are getting an understanding of what it is and how it is um brings more validity and can help establish trust also mm -hmm. um and, and, and that's not to say that you know people being people having great results in their practice and they're able to you know, leverage that and continue getting clients or what have you. Um, but that key piece around making it accessible and the way that it's going to be accessible to the most people and particularly the people who need it the most and in a way that will be a sustaining career for clinicians is to get it within the healthcare system. Now, I know that our healthcare system is not ideal, it is not perfect, but it's the system that we have. And figuring out how to um, get that link is going to be important. Um, and the research that's being done is helping those, uh, helping to build that argument and helping to build that justification. Um, so while certainly individuals can, can practice, practice well, have a thriving practice and not be um, whole, head on into research and, and, and uh, research literacy and, and, and what have you, um, the confidence that their community that they're practicing within is definitely impacted by it. And um, there's, and then bottom line too, when you know what you're, when you understand the mechanisms that you're, that you're working within, you're going to better be able to take your clinical reasoning 
with different situations that come come at you and that present themselves on the table to be able to do the most effective work that you can. Yeah. Yeah. That piece of clinical reasoning is really critical because I know we hear a lot these days about the importance of critical thinking and clinical reasoning. So I personally believe just from my own experience of reading, studying, analyzing, picking apart research studies for years has been really helpful in developing clinical reasoning. Do you feel like this is something that could be a a beneficial tool for massage therapists to help sharpen some of those things that then translate also into what they're doing in, in their clinical work? Absolutely. Yeah. And not, and not just research and clinical findings in our particular field, right? There's so many other research pieces too, that, that might not be a, a massage therapist doing the work or might not even be within you know, a rehabilitation setting or what have you, but that that information can apply to us. Yeah. Right? I always get really excited. I listen to NPR a lot and I'll get all kinds of excited sometimes when I hear about new mechanisms or processes, you know, even from a psychological piece or endocrinology piece. And, uh-huh. and I'm, I'm constantly going click, 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 click. You know, how does this apply to the body work that I do? And that I'm, how about yeah. this, you know, additional research questions that can come up, but anytime we're, we're given the opportunity to exercise our thinking, um, makes us better clinicians and better yeah. practitioners. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that you said too, over the years, mm-hmm. it has, it has benefited me. And that's one of the things that, uh, critical thinking and that clinical intuition, cause that is a thing, right? Mm-hmm. It takes time for that to develop experiences. And the more experiences we are exposing ourselves to, um, the, the better honed and developed that clinical reasoning is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that's been particularly challenging for me is acknowledging that many of the things that I have taught and written about and, you know, put down in writing or, you know, put on a film on a DVD or video or whatever, um, things that I've done for years are just plain wrong (laughs) based on more Mm -hmm. current research, you know? Mm -hmm. So what are some of the ways that educators and practitioners can navigate these challenges when they feel like, you know, I hear a lot of people say they like feel like the rug has been pulled out from under them and what they previously learned, like you know, sort of throwing up their hands, like, well, what's the point? Like everything I learned is wrong, you know? And so I understand that frustration. So, you know, as, as a researcher, do you have any hints and suggestions for people of, of how to navigate those challenges? Well, the first, the first thing is to uh, keeping our humility and our, our humbleness is always important and also giving ourselves a break. We can only do the best that we can in any moment, right? Mm-hmm. And we yeah. have to understand and accept, and this is all manner of fields. Information is always developing, new understandings are coming our way. I think of this a lot in parenting too. It's like, I, you know, I'm raising my kids a certain way, and then I learned this other reason. I'm like, crap, I've ruined that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Like, so, they're going to be in therapy for years because right. <laughs> you know, we do the best that we can. Yeah. We have our good our good intention is always very important, but we also have to be open and letting our egos down a little bit by saying, okay, you've got to be able to change and make those adjustments. But if you're not keeping up with the literature, then you may miss things. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. uh, you hear a lot about implementation work, implementation studies, where there's a, a, a process that has been developed and it's been tested for efficacy. And now they're trying to implement it within a system, right? So in the mm-hmm. healthcare system or what have you. Yeah. And there's lots of focus on this idea of implementation, but there's 
a key piece that we also have to consider that we don't hear very much about, and that's the opposite, and that's de-implementation, right? Mm -hmm. So taking things out of service, if you will, um, and doing so for the benefit of the field overall, keeping everybody singing out of the same hymnal as much as possible, right? Yeah. And not having and not having to wait for a whole generation of clinicians, whatever the discipline is, to flow out, right? So that shifting things uh, takes flexibility, staying up with the literature, and then also being flexible and being able to say, you know what, we thought we were doing this, we thought this is, we understood it to be this way, what the literature is telling us now, and what we're, we've evolved our understanding to be this, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that's, heck, we just had a, we're still in the middle of that sort of thinking, seeing how fast things can change in this, you know, these two years of the pandemic so yeah, far that's so, that's and true. seeing how quick these pieces go yeah. and what applies today may not be the same thing that applied in a whole different context a month ago. Yeah. We're lucky that it doesn't move that fast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So one of the critical aspects of evaluating and interpreting research, at least from what I have learned, is understanding levels of evidence. So can you speak briefly about what that means and why that's important? Yeah. So levels of, ele- uh, levels of evidence can be very, very nuanced. And this is where you're getting into, you know, when you understand the methodology of research and the if thens, right? Because it's 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 not nothing is dichotomous, nothing is, you know, it's either this way or that way. Things shift as different components of particular methodology changes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So there's you can have at the very base of the hierarchy of evidence is uh professional opinions, right? Mm-hmm. Opinion pieces. And nobody ever to, shares those. They don't, right? They should talk more. <laughs> But there's, there are some opinions, right, that have higher clout than others. So even within that realm of, you know, experience, what that information is being based on or what have you, changes the dynamic of how strong that evidence may be. And the same is true as we're going up that pyramid. Okay, so the, let me pause right there. So tell me what makes one opinion more I don't know, I don't want to say valid, but structurally sound than about, another. Or, or stronger than other, right? Well, yeah. so if we are, if, if we're from a clinician standpoint, right? So if, if massage therapy, we'll talk massage therapy clinician, an opinion of a one month strong student versus Whitney Lowe, <laughs> there's, I mean, there's, a, there's an experience piece that might be there, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's also other credibility pieces that might be underlaying those pieces, mm-hmm. right? Okay. An, an opinion piece that comes from the CEO of company X about a thing that really impacts company X yeah. is going to be uh, considered very differently from an absolute independent somebody giving an opinion. They yeah. might have the exact same experience level, but some of those other contextual pieces diminishes the company who's giving the, you know, the company spokesperson who's giving the opinion about that piece. Yeah. Person. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So what I hear you saying is that everybody should listen to me and do what I say, right? What, what oh boy. Is. If that were the case, I should have used myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, I mean, it just, but it, you know, those sorts yeah. of things go into it. And so the same is true because, you know, you see at the very top of the pyramid or near the top of the pyramid, these randomized control trials. 
Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And while those have the potential to have the strongest gold standard, supposedly, mm -hmm. evidence, there's there's components within that randomized control trial that if they're not addressed, it can it can make that the evidence or whatever's coming out of it junk. If the Ab yeah, absolutely. Wrong, and then if there's too much bias, right? Right. And then isn't it also a significant factor, which is that randomized controlled trials don't tend to work so well for a lot of the things that we're trying to study about our field, because it's very difficult to um, do controlled applications of massage with, you know, sham massage and, and placebo touch and things like that make some of those kind of trials a lot trickier to construct accurately. Is that, is that true? Absolutely. Yes, sir. There's, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's a really lovely movement that is that is occurring and has been occurring for the past about decade, I guess, really starting to look at pragmatic trials. Mm -hmm. And the argument being made that these trials, essentially pragmatic is what's happening in the real world, like how it would happen in, in the clinical space, right? Yeah. Which they, and they can be, they can still be randomized. There can be some other aspects. It's certainly a trial, but there's these components that, that keep it very real world and effectiveness versus efficacy, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of applied disciplines are pointing to that as this is the kind of evidence that we need. It's much more practice reflective of what we're doing. And it gets to that picture or it gets to that question of, does it work in practice? Yeah. Because ultimately these randomized control trials, these, these gold standard trials are based on um, the pharmacological model, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. When you have an intervention that is a pill mm -hmm. that you can very specifically control the absolute active ingredients that are in that dose, that dosage piece. And in the work that we do and that so many applied disciplines are, there's the human factor, right? Yeah. There's the human factor who is doing the intervention and all that that entails. And then you've got the human factor who's receiving it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because ultimately, if we've got the, a, a, a perfect technique it doesn't mean that that technique is going to be applied the same. If I do it, you do it, Sam does it, yeah. whoever does it, right? Yeah. Various levels or what have you, those things can't necessarily be controlled. Yeah. I, I've always sort of thought that a lot of the, the work that we're doing and a lot of the research that we're trying to engage in regarding clinical efficacy in our field has a lot more in common, for example, with um, studies in psychology than they might Absolutely. have with studies in pharmacology because- you know, uh, you know, I learned that when I was in graduate school studying psychology that everybody was saying, you know, your technique of counseling doesn't matter anywhere near as much as your development of the client therapist relationship. And that's just a factor that you can't isolate specifically like you can in a traditional uh, randomized control trial um, for pharmacological interventions. So it seems like there's a lot more similarity there for us. Oh, definitely. And, I, and I'll tell you another little bit. There is some, some interesting work that's being done in rehabilitation world. Um, and they're looking at sort of the black box and the description. How can we, how can we describe the intervention, right? Because mm -hmm. there's so many pieces that are going in and they're talking about an, an intervention taxonomy mm -hmm. and very different from, you know, the ICF, and we're all familiar with the ICF model of, of, of health and function, right? Can you but, briefly go over that for anyone sure, well, who's not familiar with that? 
Yep. So the, the ICF model is, is what we tend to think about. It's, it's this picture where you have the condition and the person at the center, and then you have the um, body structures um, component. You've got the activity component. You've got the participation component, and then you have the environmental contextual aspects and the personal contextual aspects that all of these things can be um, written about as articulating with a condition and mm-hmm. how and, and different access points of where you can provide intervention to help with the condition. Yeah. Right? Okay. So you can look at it from a structures and function. So the human, you know, the, this particular muscle isn't firing correctly, or this is going on. The activities that are being done, range of motion, what have you, participation is more being able to um, being able to transition, to walk, to do activities with meaning, right? That play with your kids, go shopping. Yeah. And then the, the personal factors, age, attitude, you know, whatever, self-efficacy mm-hmm. and environmental, the environment within which someone's functioning, right? And all of those pieces can have impact on somebody's experience of disability, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So- that's what we think of when we think of the ICF, but what the ICF is, is the WHO, the World Health Organization ICF model. But what, what, it actually what does the is, ICF stand for? Oh, the International, Class, International Classification of Function. Okay, great. Yep. Boy, I'm so glad that I knew that off the top of my head, Whitney. You almost, <laughs> you almost caught me there. I'm so bad with acronyms. That's what yeah. I know. <laughs> right. Um, but, but that's how we, how oftentimes clinicians think about the ICF, but what it, actually is, is a taxonomy Mm -hmm. that within that it has, you can have a number with decimal, like there's seven decimals or what have you, because it it breaks down each movement or what have you, that when you do an ICF taxonomy um, assessment, you get all the way down to the nitty gritty of what's happening with whatever function is going on with, with the patient. Yeah. Okay. It can be, it can be really, really challenging. It takes time to do it. it. It's, 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 it's hit or miss, but the concept of the model is really, really great and important. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I'm talking about this is because, um, there are others who have now are taking this concept and are looking at trying to create a taxonomy for interventions. Mm-hmm. And okay. while that can also be incredibly arduous, cause I mean, imagine you do an hour long session and now you're going to come back and you're going to do a documentation that says every single thing that you did in the intervention yeah. or the, in the session, that's crazy cakes, right? Yeah. You can't, it, it's crazy cakes to think of doing that. But what they're, what they're also talking about is this creation of a model that when you're thinking about what it is that you're doing, that you articulate what the active ingredients are of your intervention and that you're able to articulate um, the, the non-specific ingredients. They're, they're essential, but they're not the main ingredients, but they're, they're beneficial ingredients, right? Yeah. Like the way that the, the, ther- the, the therapeutic relationship, I would gather, I, w- I would argue is actually one of the primary ingredients to, to almost anything. But there may be some um, other ingredients that have an impact, but aren't the main pieces like the temperature of the room, the color of the room, the, the music that's being listened to, the amount of time, you know, all of these pieces. But if you're able to articulate and, and point to, even if it's, you don't know for sure, but theoretically, what is it that you're trying to do? Yeah. That helps put that intention in. And there's, there's this nice movement within rehabilitation for all clinicians to be thinking that way 
And then also documenting those pieces. And more and most importantly, is in the literature when you're designing interventions or to research or what have you, that you're articulating these necessary ingredients yeah. for the intervention so that we have, we're able to start looking, while we may not be able to measure in this moment, this is what we're expecting to happen at the cellular level. Mm-hmm. We're at least able to articulate those pieces again, making us better clinicians. <laughs> and I would assume there's probably a tendency just because of at least the way science in the last couple of centuries is more and more reductionistic in trying to isolate the individual variables that made the difference. What was it that really did that? There's probably a tendency to want to like, okay, is it the soft lighting? Is it the music? Is it the type of lotion that was used? You know, what is the factor that really was the key thing? And, and it seems a lot more difficult to try to find how to measure the whole, all those pieces together. And like you said, your work is very different from my work, which is very different from Susan's work and Bob's work and Steve's work and everybody else. And, and so how do you measure those kinds of things when you're trying to determine efficacy, let's say, for example, to a, a third party payer about why they should uh, support the use of massage for rehabilitation because we find it works, but what piece of it really does that? Right, exactly. And that's, and, and that's, the, the story of the elephant, right? You don't see the elephant yes. unless you look at all of its parts all together, not yeah. just the tail or the tusk or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and the same is true for massage in all manner of applied disciplines, right? And this, this shift to pragmatic research is, is one of the pieces that's trying to get at the whole of that. Now, mm-hmm. there's not one that's better than the other, in, yeah. in my opinion. I think that, I think that all aspects of it are necessary. The reductionless model so that there are pieces that we can point to and say, we know it at this piece, this is what's going on. Yeah. And then we're able to come and see the, the, the greater picture. We, we've got to be able to take that information and apply it in other settings and situations. Mm-hmm. And not all researchers do all of those different pieces. And in fact, because research can be um, so challenging, it's, it's, it's important to be able to get those folks who are really, really good at this, for example, bench science, Yeah, doing that bench science, and then taking that information and going to the next level of research or or, or being able to apply the information that is known there into the clinical realms of, you know, while we may not be testing that particular enzyme or that particular gene expression or what have you, we can talk about in our proposals and in our discussion sections, which are basically the so what of the, of the clinical findings that we have, that we're able to translate it back to some of this, this, these mechanistic aspects. Yeah. And, right. and, that, and that's going to help all the way around from, yeah. a, from you know, patients or clients feeling confident in what the work that they're doing with their therapist, to also community in trusting and trusting uh, in, in, in respecting the work that we do and Mm -hmm. elevating that in, in society's eyes. Yeah. Right. So uh, I don't want to take this on a slightly different track here for a second and talk about some issues around consuming research for the average clinician who's trying to, you know, learn how to do a better job of this. You know, you listen to or sit in on some of the discussions on social media or, you know, groups of people, you'll hear people claim, that a particular perspective or idea should be supported and they'll cite a paper on this particular claim. Why might they be getting led astray a little bit if they just rely on one paper only to tell them 
you know, whether or not something is accurate or true? Well, I tell you what, um, there's, I can break down that comment in several, in several different ways. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One piece, I'll, I'll start with the easiest fruit here. Um, truth and, and proof, proof is the really hard one. Anytime I hear somebody said it's proven. Right. Yeah, yes. No, uh -huh. no. Yeah. Um, that's a challenging piece. And there's, there's strength of evidence. The evidence suggests in, in one, one paper, one study can't have all the findings. And not only that, I would also um, caution folks away from that because citation isn't necessarily done skillfully. Mm -hmm. And when you see a citation, that is supposed to mean that that is the that that is the study that demonstrated whatever it was that was being that is being said. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of citation of of things like um, I might have said something, but it wasn't the original source, and I might be being cited for that. Yeah, uh -huh. and, that, and, and that can be a little tricky as well. So being able to um, read and assess for yourself as much as possible. We can't read everything, right? Yeah. Well, let me, let me pick that up and, and follow along with something that is kind of like taking that from, from where we are here is that one of the other things that troubles me a little bit, and I hear this comment a fair amount from people is the, the increasing number of studies that people say are just bad quality or poor quality. Let's say because uh, methodology is not good or the the inferences that come from that are really not accurate. And so you got to be really careful when you cite something because maybe it's not actually really a good study. And there's all this now pressure to publish in the academic world and whether or not something's really good or not, there's a lot of stuff that goes through peer review process that really shouldn't. Um, how do you determine, you know, whether something is really good and valid to, to, to keep you know, pursuing or citing or making reference to? Sure. Yeah. Well, and, and that, that right there is why it is so important to have some research literacy mm -hmm. so that if you're able to go in, if you're only reading the abstracts or if you're only reading the conclusion pieces, um, you can very easily be led astray. And it's not necessarily that things that are, that, you know, the outcomes aren't necessarily valid. It's just that they can sometimes, um, the strength of the evidence might be being padded a little bit. So if you've got a single, uh, you've, you've got a single group study, for instance, it could be a really great one group study, but it can't be the end all to be all causative uh, piece when there's nothing to compare it to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and so to say, then this proves that this is good for everybody. Mm -hmm. You can't make such huge claims like that. I think that, I think that we've actually gotten a lot better in, um, in, in our uh, reputable journals, um, the ones that have really uh, rigorous peer review processes, um, the, the, the potential for that sort of junk research getting through, and that's junk research, that's a really strong term, but um, I, I feel like it's getting less. Now, certainly um, there may be a, a lot more papers out there that, okay, maybe it didn't warrant its own publication all by itself, that mm -hmm. it could have, you know, there had been a little bit more in there because researchers get more points, if you will, for promotion and tenure and things like that. The more they, the more they publish back in yeah. the day, if you published one paper a year, so long as, because it took forever to get things published, that was great. Right. Yeah. 
Um, but that's, we've got a lot, a lot of journals out there right now, and there is a lot of pressure to, um, to publish, but I don't think that the, um, the troubling research that's out there is because people are always being dishonest intentionally. Mm-hmm. It may be that there are there, I would, I would warrant that there's a lot of folks who get very, um, advocacy based in their, in their work that they're doing. Yeah. And particularly if perhaps it's, uh, uh, publications are coming from uh, clinician researchers, but that aren't necessarily research researchers. Yeah. Um, and they may be just over exuberant in their uh, claims and discussion points. Yeah. Around that. Well, and I wonder, maybe you can tell me to your perspective, how much this happens. There's a common parable story about a guy who uh, is at night walking around in this town and he comes upon this drunk guy underneath a streetlight looking for his wallet because, well, what are you doing? And the guy said, Oh, I'm looking for my wallet. And they say, guys said, well, I'll help you. Did you lose it here? And he said, no, it wasn't here. It was actually over there where I lost it. And he said, well, why are you looking here? And he said, because there's a light here and I can see. And, you know, it makes me wonder like, cause I've heard from researchers sometimes what they study is what they happen to, for example, have equipment in the laboratory for or have a particular design or particular capability to answer this question. But then is it really a, a worthy question? Is this really worthy of something of studying? So does that happen a lot or much, or do you see that occurring? Oh, I would say so. And I, and I, would, I would say so definitely because, uh, because another piece is the discipline and the lens through which they're conducting the research. Mm-hmm. So if our re- if massage-based research is being done primarily by, for instance, athletic trainers, there's a mm-hmm. lot of performance work out there, right? About massage being used from a recovery standpoint or for you know running the fastest sprint or what have you. But those questions aren't the types of things that a majority of those who are going to benefit the most from massage therapy are, are really going to be able to use right but that's that's the frame that they're that they're doing the work in yeah so a short answer to your question i i love that i've never heard that parable before yeah i'm gonna start using it in my research classes because i think yeah, that's it's relevant true. yeah uh-huh. and, and then it's also what people can get funding for right yeah research costs money mm-hmm. and if you're doing something that is not sexy at the time like opiates are really sexy right now right. covid really sexy right now it's, yeah. well it might not be the best of us worthy questions in the moment. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that mean the most mean the most to the, to the field. Yeah. So um, it, it, wrapping up here, one thing, another thing I want to ask you is because I get asked this question all the time and I'm not the person who really should be answering this because it's not something I'm involved with very much, but if someone wants to learn how to get more involved with research, either on the you know participating process or you know helping to design things. What's the best way for somebody to get started doing that? I mean, do they need to have an advanced degree, or or how do massage practitioners, clinicians get more involved with the research end of things? Yeah. Oh boy, there's so many answers to that because, and, and part of it is because there's so many different ways that people can be engaged and involved in research. You know, it can be as simple as being a good research consumer, right? Being able to access Google Scholar and being able to access literature and read it and read it well, right? To wanting to ask and and ask meaningful research questions and maybe collecting data in their in their practice. Because technically we're doing that all the time, right? We're making yeah. clinical decision making and we're doing little, we're not, we're not 
we're not conducting human research as part of practice, right? Mm -hmm. But we do experiment, right? Okay, I think I think this might be something that's going on. So I'm going to try this application, right? And so yeah. this process of trial and error and seeing and seeing what works, building our clinic clin, clinical critical thinking, right? Yeah, and and that and that expertise. Um, so it may be it may be as simple as just reading and consuming it, but it may be um, doing some of these trial or or being able to report back to the field through a case study and mm -hmm. writing those pieces out and learning and and then getting it published so that it's actually read and, and seen. Yeah, um, I know that was something that when when I had my first client that I was going to go to, I was going to go and do an in-home interview and it was somebody who was in hospice and they were, uh, they had come home, they had three months to live and they wanted him to be as comfortable as possible. I went immediately to the Google and tried to find information on what do I do? What's step one, right? Yeah. I happened to find a book and I was able to get it shipped to me really, really quick. So I could, you know, have at least some sort of template to follow for myself. But um, now going into a Google scholar, you can type in some key pieces. And if there's a case study out there, now you've got a template too, of what, what you might try in your practice, right? Yeah. So, so being able to potentially write a case, a case report, getting it published. So other people can access that. Um, another way that somebody may be involved, uh, in research is actually providing an intervention, mm -hmm. um, for a research team. So there have been several instances where people have been in the right place at the right time. Um, that's not necessarily something you can just raise your hand and say, I want to give an intervention for research because if there's not researcher in, in your area that's doing that, then you can't necessarily do that. Yeah. Um, another way to be engaged in research is through participation in research of like being an actual participant. So if there's mm -hmm. research being done on the massage field, um, you could potentially uh, volunteer to be a participant in that, right? And either be observed or provide survey information, what have you. The um, Massage Therapy Foundation is, is uh, getting ready to relaunch their PBRN, which is a practice-based research network, mm -hmm. um, MassageNet. And that is to essentially put together a cadre of people who are interested in either being research participants themselves for the field or perhaps this is another way that you can get involved in research is by um, uh, uh, implementing research in your practice through, through other researchers. So there's, for instance, there's a, a great PBRN down in Australia, Pracky, that I was involved with a research study that um, was looking at lower back pain. And so we had, we were, we were interested in people who were coming to receive massage therapy for the first time. Um, and, and then we were going to follow them over like three treatments or what have you. Right. But as researchers, we don't necessarily have access to populations. I I'm a researcher, you know, in an academic institution, but I don't have patients that I see. I'm not part of the school of medicine mm -hmm. or anything like that. And then I also don't, I don't have time anymore. I'm, not, I'm no longer a clinician. So I don't have access to, uh, client, massage clients. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that providing that link, if there's a research study here and then clinicians can say, you know what, I can do this research, mm -hmm. you know, I can help do this research and they may uh, collect data for the researchers and send that back. And, you know, there's training and stuff that, that is involved in that, but that's another way potentially um, through practice-based research networks that hopefully we'll have up and running very soon again, Yeah, um, that they could be involved in that way when yeah. research studies arise. Mm -hmm. you or you can go and get a PhD. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you've mentioned a couple of times Google Scholar, and I've been um, 
surprised a number of times mentioning things in the classroom of people who didn't know what that was. Can you briefly tell um, our listeners, people who are not familiar with that, what Google Scholar is? I would love to, Whitney Lowe. Google Scholar is um, a branch of Google, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's specific to research literature. And it's, it's really nice, too, because it accesses um, what's called gray literature a little bit more mm-hmm. than um, like a PubMed. And gray literature is um, other sorts of pieces like abstracts, sometimes even um, periodical articles, like magazine articles that aren't necessarily peer reviewed, because that's what a journal is a peer reviewed um, publication, right? Yeah. Um, whereas a periodical, uh, even if it's something that calls themselves a journal, they aren't necessarily peer-reviewed journals, they're, they're periodicals. Um, but it'll, it, you, can, you can type in um, an individual's name or you can type in a couple of keywords like massage and pain, and you hit the, the go button. And unlike Google that brings up all manner of things and products and what have you, it filters out all of that extra noise, and it just focuses on the scholarly literature, mm-hmm. um, patents and things like that, that might be engaged and involved in that. Yeah. And you're able to do some narrowing down and, and things. And um, you can actually look up researchers too, because there's uh, Google Scholar pages. So it's sort of like LinkedIn, that you can have uh, Google Scholar uh, uh, information biographies. So I've got a Google Scholar. You can, you can look me up. Hey, well, we'll do that. I'm going to do that as soon as we're done here. <laughs> See what I got from you. So Excellent. Well, Nikki, thank you so much for your time here. This has been a delightful conversation and a delightful insight into a lot of things around research. And um, I just think we've got a lot of fascinating things ahead of us on this road, looking into uh, the whole world of, of massage and figuring out what really happens with us and, and you know, what are we doing that, that's helping people in, in all these different ways. So uh, I want to applaud you and thank you for all of your work in this arena of marrying the world of academics um, with massage therapy, because we sure need a whole lot more people doing that kind of thing. So um, uh, I certainly applaud and thank you for all your, your uh, efforts doing those things over the years. Thanks, Whitney. I appreciate yeah. that. I have, I, I've had a, so much fun doing it. And whereas, you know, when I first started this journey, this academic journey, I had no idea that this is where I was going to end up. Um, and when I decided to go into the faculty realm and research all the way, I, I, I had delusions of grandeur, perhaps, of being you know huge research scientist. And I'm realizing I think the place where I'm going to land and be uh, try to make my best splash is yes, I've got research out there and it's and it's making an impact. Um, but I think it's going to be in helping to develop the next generation. Mm-hmm. And the people that are going to be the big researchers in our field, yeah. and we're we're still very young in our research development, and yeah. that 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 training piece is so important. And training massage clinicians who who have who have the interest to go to that next level and get that higher degree, helping to cultivate them and mentor them into those larger spheres of huge NIH funding and yeah. uh, science funding and things like that. So. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. I can't think of anybody better to do that. So thank you for all your oh, efforts. So along nice. Yes. So <laughs> Nikki, if people want to f- um, find out more from you, connect with you, how can they uh, reach you, find out uh, more about what you're up to? Sure. So um, I do, I've got the Google Scholar page and I'm yeah. also on uh, ResearchGate. LinkedIn, I sort of, I, I am not, I am not a social media person, so I don't have any of those pieces, but um, old school email, I'm mm-hmm. at uh, nmonk at iu.edu. 
Um, I, I tend to have a pretty slow response time, um, unfortunately, because I am so focused on the, the academic work as, as chair of the department. It's, it's a lot of work, yeah. <laughs> but I do, right. but I do try to um, get back in touch with folks. And of course, at conferences, I come, I go to uh, many of the conventions and conferences and things. So I'm always happy to meet people there too. Wonderful. Well, we sure thank you for carving out some time for us today to have some discussions to explore this uh, a little bit further. So thanks again so much. And it was really delightful. Thanks, Whitney. See you next time or see you soon, hopefully. (laughs) Yes, I hope so too. And please remember the Thinking Practitioner podcast is supported by ABMP, the Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership gives professional practitioners like you a package including individual liability insurance, free continuing education, and quick reference apps, legislative advocacy, and much more. ABMP's CE courses, podcast, and the Massage and Bodywork magazine always feature expert voices and new perspectives in the profession, including both Till and me. Thinking Practitioner listeners can save on joining ABMP at abmp.com forward slash thinking. So we would like to say a thank you to all our sponsors and, of course, to all of our listeners. Thanks for hanging out with us today on this uh, discussion. You can stop by our sites for show notes, transcripts, and extras. You can find that over on my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com and also over on Till's site at advanced-trainings.com. Please do send questions or things you'd like to hear us talk about. You can email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media under our names, Till Luca and mine, Whitney Lowe. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts as it does help other people find the show. And you can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, or wherever else you happen to listen. And please do share the word and tell a friend. And of course, if you're unable to find us in any of those locations, you can spin your finger around a Tibetan singing bowl counterclockwise if you're in the Southern Hemisphere and you can hear us right there. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>